Wow. You know, um, I made some notes this week about what I wanted to talk about, and then this morning I decided to check them all and just kind of speak from my heart, which probably means I'm going to forget something that I want to say, so you won't mind if I come up and grab the mic back, right? Anytime. Halfway through? Anytime. Okay. Yeah, 11 years ago, almost 11 years ago, a group of us met here at Prairie View for the first time, and a lot has changed in 11 years. You know, 11 years ago, Jeff and I still had a couple of kids at home. 11 years ago, the Brooks family had four kids. Right. Right. Now, Jeff and I are empty nesters, and the Brooks have six kids. I'm right, right? Six? Yeah? Okay. And uh, the only... That's it, too. That's it. Okay. (laughs) And the only thing left dependent upon Jeff and I is our family dog who, by the way, came into our home the, the, on the very same day I met the Brooks family. Yep. He's now almost 11, and he's got a little gray going on in his muzzle. Well, I guess I've got a little gray going on as well. And my hair was a slightly different color back then 11 years ago, although it had help. But something hasn't changed, and I think that is the desire of the people of Waukee Community Church to be a God-centered and servant-focused community. And so I've thought a lot about what that means um, over the past couple of days. And those of you who know me well know that I'm something of an introvert. And as such, home to me is a place I recharge my batteries. Home is a place where I get away from the crowd and I find solitude. And so when I started to think about a permanent facility, a church home for Waukee Community Church, my mind actually kind of rebelled against that. Because I know, as a Christ-centered person, that my goal for my church family is to engage the community, not to withdraw from it. So when this desire started coming in that I wanted a church home, I really had to reconcile that, and I had to think about what a church home would mean to me. And as I thought about it, you know, there was a lot of practical considerations, and some that were more philosophical as well. You know, practically, anybody who's worked nursery, little life, children's life, kitchen, knows how nice it would be to have all of our supplies at the right place, at the right time, which doesn't always happen. You know, little Waukee Community Church trivia. Uh, Did you guys know a few years ago we took communion from plastic shot glasses? Got here one day for communion, and we had no communion cups. And as we were trying to figure out what to do, Ryan Leonard's went to the store formerly known as Dolls, which happens to sell plastic shot glasses. So we made it work, but it would be nice to have our supplies where we want them at the time we want them. For my husband and for the countless others who have uh, done setup and tear down countless weeks over the past 11 years, it would be nice not to have to do that. But even more, it would be nice for our nursery, our little life, our kids' life to have their own safe, warm, welcoming, consistent spot. It would be nice to have a kitchen 
that is the heart of the home, right? That's where we all gather. That could be a hospitable place where we welcome newcomers as soon as they come in the door, where you can come to grab something to drink, but stay for conversation, stay for that relationship building. It would be nice to have a place where we could bring local and global missionaries to us to tell us about the work that they're doing, and more importantly, how we can join them in their work. It would be nice to have a place that we could open to the community where we could bring people to us so that we can engage the community, not withdraw from the community. So that is what having a church home means to me. And I want to invite you guys all to join with us in making this a reality. Every one of us here is an important member of the Waukee Community Church family. And as such, I want you all to help us get this facility, make it a reality. Um, so I would ask you to prayerfully think about that. And I, th I think that would be, for me right now, the best way that we can stay a God-centric and servant-focused community. So thank you, guys. Thanks, Jane. Thank you very much. It's exciting to think about how the avenue, a place to call home, we can point people to Jesus. And uh, Jane, thank, I really appreciate you sharing that today. Well, we're in 1 Timothy chapter 6 as we're talking in, our, in this uh, three-week series on stewardship. Stewardship along the avenue as we think about pointing to this facility which we are calling the avenue and our capital campaign that we're calling the avenue to Jesus. And, uh, and so it's important for us to talk about how, what is our part in making this happen? How do we be good stewards with what God has given? And last week we talked about the fact that God owns everything and he's generous with it. And so the point last week was for you to enjoy fully what God has given you. So last week when we, we ended our talk uh, and we looked at the first part of First Timothy, I ended talking with this, which is uh, my, little, my youngest kids, Malachi and Olivia. Um, Olivia's five, Malachi's three. And uh, this was given to, to Malachi as a gift. And it's the Jake and the Neverland Pirates spyglass, which is awesome, clearly because they fight over it. And this was a coveted toy. And as I was talking about last week and sharing about how well, this was Malachi's, but it was my money that bought this for him. And I wanted him to be generous with it. I wanted him to share with his sister. And oh, the joy when he, as three years old, looks at his five-year-old sister with those eyes and says, here you go, you can use it too. Like that brings me so much joy to see him generous with the things that I have bought for him. Today, what I want to talk about is the simple idea that God is a generous owner. And because of that, we should be generous managers or stewards of his stuff. God owns everything and he's generous. So as those he's appointed as managers of his things, as stewards of his things, he also wants us to be generous people. And so we're going to see in this three-week series that God calls uh, followers of Jesus to give freely, joyfully, and generously. Not through guilt. If there's anything I could just scream at you today is God does not want you, and I do not want you to give of your resources out of guilt. 
out of somehow I just feel horrible, so I have to give. I must do this out of a sense of obligation. The scripture tells us to give with a joyful heart. And what I want to help you to see today is as you are a manager of God's stuff, you too can give joyfully because it resonates in your heart. It creates joy in your heart. So we're going to show what the Bible says about living both obediently and generously. And I want to help you be excited about what God is doing through the avenue as we look at launching into this capital campaign so we can purchase this facility in June. And so we do need to raise $80,000 by May and another $85,000 by September to make this happen. The purchase will happen in June, and we hope to have it uh, retrofitted and remodeled so we can be in it and using it by September. And so we look at that, and in the end, I want you to say, I know what God wants me to do. I know how God is leading me to participate in this, and I'm excited to be a generous manager of God's resources. Since God is a generous owner, he wants us to be generous managers. And so we can be like God. We are, after all, his money manager, each one of us. And this is a tough thing to get our heads around. You notice when I was talking about this spyglass, I said something. I said, it was my money that bought this and gave this to Malachi. But that's not exactly true, is it? The reality is, it was God's money that bought this. So I could be generous with Malachi. It's so hard to get our heads around that, that our stuff is not our stuff, that it's God's and we're managers of it. It's just hard. We talk about it all the time. We have to talk about it all the time because we naturally just think about our stuff as our stuff instead of God's stuff of which we're managers. Um, About five or six years ago, Warren Buffett gave away $30 million. Warren Buffett, one of the wealthiest men in the country, gave away $30 million. He gave it to Bill Gates. Now you might think, well, that's a little strange uh, because I'm pretty sure Bill Gates is doing okay and he didn't need Warren Buffett's $30 million. But why did he do this? Because uh, Bill Gates had invested his personal fortune into a, a charity and Warren Buffett wanted to be part of that. And what asked, when, when, when asked, when Warren Buffett was asked, what caused him to give away the bulk of his fortune to, uh, to Bill Gates, he said, I got rich because investors thought I could make more investing their money than they could. Bill and Melinda Gates can spend my money better than I could. And it was a reality check for him. He realized, and it's true for us as well, how a money manager spends his money is as important as how he makes his money. God wants us to be people who reflect him, and God cares about how we invest his money. He really is interested in how we spend it because he wants us to give generously like he does. Since God's a generous God, we should be generous managers of his money. So you've been given a job. You have been given and tasked a job. You work for the wealthiest client in the entire universe. And he has given you a portion of his wealth. Some of you it's a big portion. Some of you it's a small portion. He told you to spend it like he would. So how do we do that? We're going to look at First Timothy 6 and we're going to see 
how God instructs us to be good managers of his money. He is the, the wealthiest owner in the entire universe, has given you marching orders, has given me marching orders as how he wants to manage, he wants us to manage his resources. And so first of all, in 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, we're going to see what he doesn't want us to do. He's told us, listen, I'm going to give you money. Don't manage it this way. Let's look at managing poorly. How would we be poor managers of his money? Look at 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. If you, if you want to know how to be a poor manager, here it is. Paul says, verse 17 of 1 Timothy 6, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. The Apostle Paul instructs Timothy with these instructions. He says, first of all, command the rich. This is an order. He's giving marching directions to Timothy and saying, give this order to the wealthy. Now he says this order is directed at the rich of the world. In the context of 1 Timothy 6, what Paul probably had in mind here was landowners, wealthy people who came to faith in Christ with lots of money. And some of these wealthy people didn't even have to work. They were set to the point where they didn't even have to work. Now, verse 18 is going to tell us what to do with the money. But verse 17, he starts with telling the wealthy how not to spend their money. And so this verse is about what not to do. The first thing he says is not to be arrogant. Literally, the word arrogant means proud. It means to think that you're greater, you're of greater worth than someone else. This is such a temptation for all of us. It doesn't matter how much money you have. The temptation is to be arrogant. We think, look what I did. I'm a self-made man. I'm a self-made woman, you think. We think that we did this, that we, put, we worked hard, that we earned our stuff. The temptation is to think sometimes if someone's poorer than me, they just really aren't as smart as me. Those temptations are out there, and what Paul tells us is that's arrogance speaking. Don't be arrogant. The second thing he says is don't put your hope in wealth. If you want to manage poorly, first of all, be arrogant. Second of all, if you want to manage poorly, put your hope in wealth. Saving money actually can be a way of not trusting God. Saving money can be a way of not trusting God. Dave Ramsey would kill me right now if you heard me say that. But the truth is, saving money might mean you're not trusting in God. I once talked to a man who said, my greatest fear in life is that I'd save so much money that I don't need God. Saving is good, but trusting in savings is bad. Sometimes what results, if we put our hope in possessions or money, sometimes the result of that is different. Sometimes the result is not just saving money, but it's saving possessions. We call this hoarding. When uh, I was a teenager, we moved my grandmother out of her house into her retirement home. And one of the things that we had to do is the whole family went over to grandma's house and we had to clean the house out and get it ready for sale. My grandma was born in 1902. She lived through the Great Depression. When we went down to her basement to clean it out, it, what we found down there was amazing. She had saved every... McDonald's used to serve their hamburgers in foam boxes. Some of you don't even remember that, but they were foam boxes. She had saved every foam box that she ever got a McDonald's hamburger in. 
She had saved every newspaper that she had ever bought. Stacks and piles of things in the basement. Why? Well, I think it was driven in part because she remembered the Great Depression. And she said, I need to hoard this stuff because what if it all falls apart again? And she had all this stuff. I'll use it for something. We put our hope in stuff and in money, but the text reminds us. It says, don't put your hope in wealth. Why? Because it's so uncertain. In 2008, there was really, there was a housing market collapse in our country. And uh, all of a sudden, we had all these people underwater with their mortgages. And, and it was crazy in 2008. And it took a while to recover from that. And we remember that. And at the time, we started thinking things like this. What if we have, uh, like, what if this thing, whole thing crashes and, and, and the, the market crashes and, and money crashes and either there's rampant inflation or deflation, either way, what happens? And all of a sudden, this security that everyone had kind of felt comfortable with, all of a sudden we started asking questions. What if any moment the world economy collapsed? All of a sudden you start realizing wealth is pretty uncertain. Uh, in this bi- biography on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Eric Metaxas recounts this story. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a great theologian who lived in Germany through World War II. And as, in, and as Metaxas is writing his biog- biography and setting up the stage to talk about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he has to talk about his roots. After World War I, after Germany lost World War I, the Allies put serious reparations on Germany. And Germany could not keep up with the serious payments that they had to make to the Allies. The Allies were just brutal to Germany. And so what Germany started doing is started printing this money. And of course, inflation went crazy. And and Dietrich Bonhoeffer recounts remembering that after years and years of his father investing their money into basically what was a whole life insurance policy, when that life insurance policy came due to the full amount after paying it to 30 or 40 years, when he got his check when it came due, inflation had been so much that it was enough that the whole family could just go out and have a meal together at a restaurant. That's all it was worth. And what Paul reminds us here is that wealth is so uncertain. Put your hope in God, the text says, because God is certain. Money is uncertain. God is certain. That message is so countercultural. And this message is not just for the rich, is it? This message is for every single one of us. Interestingly enough, Paul is addressing the wealthy here, but aren't these concepts true no matter how much you have? Anyone who's ever played the lottery knows what it's like to put your hope in wealth. Because we think, if I only had more, you know, you look at this, what was the last big one? It was like a billion dollars, I don't know, $300 million, whatever it was, these massive jackpots. And we think, what if we had this much money, then I could be secure. Then I could do whatever I want with. And we read the stories that a vast percentage, large percentage of people who win the lottery, their lives are destroyed by it. If you look at the stories, the vast majority, their lives are destroyed. And we read this and we think, oh, I don't care. I'll be different. I'd manage it well. You don't have to be wealthy to understand what it's like to put your hope on money. You know, if all goes according to plan, uh, Clarissa and I will pay off our, our uh, van, our minivan that we bought this summer, and I can't wait. 
Like, I, I feel like that stupid car loan weighs around my neck like an albatross. And I think, man, if I could just get that paid off, we'd be free of it. Wouldn't that be great? And then I could get to the point where I could save enough money, and then I could weather any problem that ever came my way, and oh, by the way, and I wouldn't need God. See, this balance, there's this balance between handling the money God gives us wisely and getting out of debt. On this flip side, putting all our hope in that money instead of in God. Because I want to be a good manager of God's money. That's why I should not put my hope in wealth. But the reality is, most of the time, I just want to be self-sufficient. And if you're honest with yourself, I'm sure you feel the same way. The truth is, if you want to be a poor manager of God's money, Paul says, put all your hope in money, be arrogant about how you got it, and, and you will be a poor manager of that money. The reality is we should put our hope in God. You know, money's not evil. Last week we saw that God provides everything richly for our enjoyment. Some of you would say here today, Dave, I'm not rich. I'm not wealthy. This, you're not even talking to me. But that's not true. Do you know what the average yearly income, world income is? When you factor in the poorest of the nations and the wealthiest of the nations, the average income, the global mean income, is $1,225 a year. A year. If you make more than that, you are wealthy. If you have transportation to work, you're rich. If you have a job, you're rich. If you ate today, which I know you all ate today because you were here, you're rich. You're rich. Which one of us would say, well, and, and even if you're not rich, okay, let's just say you're not rich. Let's say, okay, well, I, yeah, Dave, I make it like, you know, like $5,000 a year, right? I'm not rich. Even if you're not rich, which one of us would say it's okay to go, well, I'm not rich, so it's okay for me to put my hope in money. It doesn't matter. Don't put your hope. It's a bad manager when we put all our hope in money. We manage poorly when we put our hope in wealth and we think it gives us status. That is not how not to manage God's resources. Paul leaves it from verse 17 now, and he's going to tell us his second thing he wants us to know today is if it's not, don't manage poorly. The second concept that he wants us to know is how do we manage well? We manage generously. So how do we do this? And he's going to tell us. Look at verse 18 of the text. To manage generously, we do this. Command them. There's that word again. It's an instruction or an order. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. You want to be a good manager of God's money? Manage it generously. First of all, he says to do good. That's, what t that's how you be a manager of God's money. The only other reference to this word, uh, to do good, this, this Greek word here, is in Acts chapter 18, or 14, verse 17. Uh, you can put that up there, Sean. It says this, God has shown you kindness by giving you rain and crops. That is the same word. The idea here is God has done good to you out of his abundance simply by giving you rain and crops. It's this idea of overflow. God showers his blessing on people. So show your blessing 
on others in a way that does good, just like God showers the rain on us. So we should shower good to others. Another way he says how we manage generously, the text says, be rich in good deeds. This is a great point. To those who have money, it is very tempting for us to think that more money solves all problems. It's very tempting for us to think this. This does not matter which side of the political aisle you stand on. One side says, if we give the government more money, the government can distribute it better for everyone. The other side says, if we give small businesses and people more money, that will flow down to everyone. It's very tempting on both sides of the aisle to think that money solves all problems. But this is a reminder that God wants all of us. He wants our money, but he wants our time too. The solution to manage wisely is not just to give your money away, but to be rich in good deeds. The wealthiest among us will be tempted to just think, if I write a check, I can be done with it, and I've done my good thing. But Paul says very clearly to Timothy, your instructions for people is this, not only money, but also time and effort. One of the things I love is years ago when we were talking about where our global missions initiative would, would land, we came up with a few guiding principles. And one of the guiding principles was this. We're not willing to invest our money where we're not willing to invest our time. That is an important guiding principle that comes right out of 1 Timothy 6. How we invest is not just by writing a check and walking away. How we invest is with our time too. That's Paul's instructions. Be rich in good deeds. Why does God say this? Because he wants our heart. The next thing he says in the text is be generous. Be generous. Of your wealth, overflow generously to other people. One of the problems or difficulties is that when our income goes down, it's tempting to cut out any generous living, any generosity. That's tempting. We think, oh no, resources are down. We've got to cut spending. We've got to stop. And we start cutting off our giving to other people. But Paul's instruction is very clear. Be generous no matter what you have. Once there was a boy who had a strange obsession with thumbtacks. He loved to collect thumbtacks. He had a board with all these different thumbtacks on it. There were uh, green thumbtacks and blue thumbtacks. There were custom logo thumbtacks on his bulletin board. Every time he'd run into an interesting thumbtack, he'd buy it and pin it to his bulletin board. And this little boy who was old enough and, and uh, smart enough to manage those thumbtacks wisely put them on his board. One day, though, he had a smaller brother who was not old enough to uh, be having a thumbtack collection. But he saw his, old, his little brother, and he took down all the thumbtacks off his board, and he put them in his hand. And, you know, just like probably any older brother, he wanted to taunt his younger brother with his cool thumbtack collection. And so he held them out to show his little brother the thumbtacks he had. Of course, what did that little boy do? He just wanted to be like his older brother. So he reached out his hand to grab the thumbtacks, to which the older brother responded by pulling back his hand and closing tight on the thumbtacks, to which he replied with a yelp and tossed them on the ground. And that is the reality. When, when we tighten the belt on our generosity, 
When we pull back and cut out generosity in our life, essentially we're saying to God, here's the open hand that I'm holding all of my possessions that you have given me. These are yours. But when we pull back and tighten it, what we actually do is we hurt our own hearts. Because God wired us to reflect Him and His character, and He is a generous God, and so you and I should be generous as well. And the reality is because you were wired to be generous like God, it brings you the most joy when you reflect God's character. That's why the text here says, instruct them. Instruct them. He says, don't put your health in, your, your hope in wealth. Verse 18, command them to do good, be generous, and willing to share. And this is why he keeps instructing them. In this way, they lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. This willingness to share gives us life. It gives us joy because we're reflecting God's character. At Waukee Community Church, over the last ten and a half years that I have been here, over the last ten and a half years, I've watched a lot of really cool thing, ways that this has fleshed itself out. I've watched God's people be generous. I've seen adoptions get funded. I've seen cars been repaired, taxes get paid, rent provided, tuition paid, Christmas presents brought, missions funded, mortgage payments made, groceries bought, medical bills covered, goats purchased, wells dug, camps funded, meals bought, sheets purchased, all anonymously, all because God loves generosity. And it brings us joy when we're generous with what God has given us. So when we put our hope in God, not money, we can live generously like God. And that in and of itself is a huge reward. It's a huge reward. Now some of you would say, well, Dave, this is great. I want to be generous. I want so badly to be generous, but I don't have anything with which I can be generous. Ephesians 4 speaks to this. You were hardwired to be generous. Look at this verse. He who has been stealing, Paul says, must steal no longer. Okay, that makes sense. But must work. Okay, that also makes sense. Doing something useful with his own hands. This all makes sense so far. Stop being dishonest. Work hard. Because... Hard work is the value of itself, right? That is not what Paul says. Why should you not steal? Because you were wired to be generous. That he may have something to share with those in need. This verse will blow your mind. You should, you should work hard, not so you can just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and provide all your needs, but so that you can be generous. You were hardwired. To be generous. This is amazing. So you can't stop back and go, well, I want to give. I just don't have anything to give. Somewhere in your life, you have to be generous. Something has to sacrifice because you were hardwired. Somehow. And I'm not talking about amounts. Some can give more than others. This is never about amounts. This is always, uh, this is never about equal giving. It's about equal sacrifice. And that's so cool here in the text is because Paul knows we were hardwired to be generous. The Bible says pursue wealth so you can give it away. And that takes us to our third thing in the text, verse 19, which I already read, but I want to read again. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. 
When we are generous, the truth is, we are making an investment of God's money. An investment in eternity. Randy Alcorn has a great line. After, in his book, The Treasure Principle, after he talks about the fleeting nature of possessions, he says things like, you know, you can't take your possessions with you. There's no U-Haul behind the hearses, those kind of things. He makes one of his greatest observations. He says this, you can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. That is so great. There is a reward of generous management. The Bible say, says it's okay to pursue your own self-interest, and you do this by investing in eternity. And this is so countercultural. The world is generous for the wrong reasons. The world is generous just simply for a feeling. The world is generous because they're trying to buy the approval of people or God. The world is generous because it feels good to give away money or give away time or it's just the right thing to do. But the Christian is generous because he or she is investing in his own future, in her own future. Matthew says, do not store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moss and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Then this is great. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Friends, today you need to understand that heaven is not a reward. Heaven is a gift that is given to everyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sin. Heaven is not primarily the reward. When you're generous with God's resources, you are sending them ahead and you get a reward from the Almighty God in the new kingdom. So in this sense, you're sending God's resources back to Him so that He can manage them for you. And so we come full circle. God gives us His stuff generously. We generously give it back to Him and say, for eternity will you manage this for me. When you believe something, you take a risk because the reward is great. And in a sense, in giving our stuff back to God and saying, here you go, I'm investing in eternity, we take a risk, but the reward is great. When I was 18 years old, I had worked hard my uh, entire high school career at Hy-Vee and other jobs, and, and I had paid on this car. I bought a car, and, 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 uh, and I'd paid a lot of money into this car. And when I went to college, I went to the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago and was strongly discouraged that you bring a car because there's no place to park it there. And so I did not. I sold my car and went off to college. And my dad said this, Dave, what are you going to do with that money? Because it wasn't jump change, especially back in 1990-something. And uh, it wasn't jump change. It was a good amount of money. And I said, I don't know what I'm going to do with it. I have no idea. I'm 18 years old. I know nothing. And he said, well, here's the deal, Dave. I've had a client, one particular client, that uh, for 20 years I've uh, done his taxes and done his accounting. And I'm just looking at his company that's publicly traded stock. And I'm telling you, right now is the right time to buy. I've been watching the trends on this thing for 20 years. Now is the time to buy. Okay, Dad. So he hooked me up and we bought this, this stock. And, uh, and uh, over the next four years, that stock doubled in value. Now, would I trust my dad? Yes, of course I believed him. 
I believed him and I trusted in him because I thought he knew what he was doing and he did. The question now is when Paul instructs Timothy from the word of God and us by proxy, when he instructs us to invest generously his money in eternity, will you believe him? Will you believe him? I could have said, Dad, you're crazy. The stock market goes up and the stock market goes down and I'm afraid to lose all my money and I think you're full of hogwash because you're an old man anyway. And I could have just said, no, I'm going to do my own thing and I could have gone and put it in a savings account and earned, I might have got like 1.5% back then in a savings account, right? And I could have walked away with that. But I trusted him and I believed him. So the big idea today is simply Will you believe God? Will you be generous with your resources because they're His and He's put you in charge of them? Will you be a generous manager? And I am blown away by this concept of generosity. So uh, some of you, I've told, you've heard this story before, and if you have, just bear with me because it's one of my favorite stories about generosity. Um, about 11 or 12 years ago, I had an opportunity to go to India. And... Uh, in, uh, went on a missions trip. Uh, as a pastor, I was training other pastors to be pastors in India. Um, one thing I quickly discovered in India is that I hate Indian food. Like, I, I'm just that some of you like it. I don't, you're crazy. I can't stand it, right? So all week, uh, I'm like eating protein bars and, and just, and, and bread, just to try to survive for the week. But at one point, all of us American pastors that were there training were invited over to someone's house. And so there was about 12 of us around this table. And this local Indian man had prepared a meal for us. Now, this guy had nothing. He probably spent two weeks to a month's wages on this meal for us. And I knew it. And, uh, and so we're sitting around the table, and I'm just blown away by his generosity. So he puts in front of me a hard-boiled goose egg. I mean, that's what it looked like, right? Covered in vomit sauce. I'm not kidding you. That's what it looked like to me. And, and I'm thinking to myself, first of all, Lord God, how am I going to get through this, right? Because I don't like, you guys, if you know me, you know I hate eggs anyway. And I really don't like hard-boiled goose eggs covered in vomit sauce. And so uh, I'm sitting there thinking about how. And the thought that then quickly replaced that in my head was this. This man sacrificed an incredible amount for us because he wanted to honor the teaching of God's word and honor us. And I was blown away because he stood, he didn't sit at the table with us, he stood at the side of the table, this man, and his face was a smile ear to ear because he was so happy to let the meager resources that he had overflow to us. And I just thought, yes, he's managing generously, just like God wants us to. And the joy that came to him was overflowing and abundant. Friends, this is what it means. We have a generous God. And he has tapped into something of joy with his generosity. And he just wants us to manage generously like he does.